Welcome to The Driven Entrepreneur, where we sit down with visionaries, trailblazers, and entrepreneurs and discover why and how they do what they do. We'll get the backstory, plus plenty of life and business lessons along the way. Here's your host, Matt Browning. Hey, this episode is brought to you by my very own NLP practitioner course. I've been teaching neuro-linguistic programming, or NLP, for nearly 15 years. It is the most powerful tool for communication on the planet, and it can be yours today. For a very limited time, I'm giving away my entire NLP course workbook for free. Go to nlpwithmatt.com. All the patterns, all the tools, and the techniques of NLP in the complete course workbook, the same one that we use to teach our live certification classes, yours free. NLPwithmatt.com. Get it today. Let's get back to the show. Hey, hey, welcome back to The Driven Entrepreneur. It's Matt Browning, and we are ready to rock with another amazing episode. Now, you are out there being driven, of course. You're, you, you've been pivoting and figuring out your life, figuring out your business. And every single week, I've been striving to bring a different style of driven to you so you can really get like the, the, the full gambit of what it means to be driven in life, what it means to succeed in all areas. And you know, we have people from entertainment, from business, and we've been getting in, into a lot of athletics. I think when you're competing at the highest possible level, you're in you know professional sports, you're in uh, the Olympics, you're anything in that, that level, it takes a certain special kind of someone. It takes a special story to get there. And today, this week, we have Brandon Lyons. Now, Brandon is a member of the U.S. Paralympic Cycling National Team. He's a 2020 Paralympic hopeful. And we're going to talk all about the Olympics, we're going to talk about what has been going on um, with the way the world has been and the shifts for Tokyo 2020 and what it takes to compete at that level and how someone is going to get themselves into the Paralympic, uh, the Paralympic competition. And that takes, again, someone very, very special. So without any further ado, please welcome Brandon Lyons. Brandon, are you there, my friend? I am here. Hey, good morning, Matt. Hey, good morning. So where are you? are you still? I know you've been living at the Paralympic, uh, the Olympic Training Center in Colorado Springs for the last three years. Are you there now still? Or have you uh, moved somewhere else uh, in the wake of all the, the 2020 craziness? Yeah, no, so uh, I am actually still here in Colorado Springs um, at the Training Center. I decided that it was the best move for me from you know, just a safety standpoint early on. And then just in order to continue to train um, the, the difficult part leading up to this was the uncertainty of, you know, when Tokyo 2020 was going to happen. Was it still going to happen? Was it going to be postponed or canceled? So in the midst of all this uncertainty, um, you know, I had made the decision to stay here. Currently, right now, we have about 16 athletes that are here at the Olympic and Paralympic Training Center, when typically it's, it's not 16. Yes. And I would say there's usually around 300 or so here on any given week. Yeah, I was just uh, just there visiting a few months ago, um, getting ready to set up for a leadership conference. And man, it, I mean, there was just athletes everywhere. And it was a it's a very cool vibe, man. Like, um, if, if you have the chance to go to the Olympic Training Center, the Paralympic Training Center, you got to go check this out. It is it's the coolest vibe ever. There's people everywhere. There's training. There's competitions. There's, um, you know, whether it's mat rolling or they're uh, fencing or they're, they're cycling, the shooting range. I mean, it is everyone is there. Um, 
you, of course, have been training there for three years. What was it like when you first, when you first got into there? And we'll, we'll get into your story a little bit in a moment, but what was it like when you first moved there? Is it a little bit kind of like a, a dorm in a college or are you excited? Are you scared? Are you like, what's going through your mind when you first decide to, to go in there full time? Sure. Yeah. And I don't want to go into my story. So I know that we'll kind of hit on that later, but uh, just kind of first impressions, you know, obviously I, I grew up never expecting to go to the Olympics or go to the Paralympics. Um, and then, you know, having the opportunity to come out here uh, and really just be kind of engulfed in, in it all, really that Olympic and Paralympic movement, I mean, is extremely inspiring. Um, but it was challenging, you know, going from having your own house, having your own privacy, and then kind of taking a step back and then moving back into a room, having a roommate, um, you know, all of those certain challenges were, were present with, with also trying to manage a job. So um, it was kind of a mix of, you know, very exciting and, and very grateful for the opportunity to, to call the training center my home, but just trying to you know, navigates these changes in my life at this time. What, 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 what a shift that has to be. And, and I know that's coming off of just a few months in uh, on the heels of a massive change. When you're growing up, you're, you're obviously going uh, to Tokyo for cycling. Has cycling always been a part of your life or is that something that you got into later on? What were you, what, what was your, I guess I'll say athletic ambitions as a kid. For me, I wasn't athletic at all. I didn't do any sports as a kid. Not until I was 19, I started rock climbing. And then all of a sudden I got into a whole different world of like solo sports. That's my story. What were you like as a kid? Were you always into that? Or is this something that kind of happened later in life? Yeah, so I was always an athlete growing up. I mean, I played almost any single sport you could imagine as a kid, um, you know, all the way through college and, but was very team oriented. So uh, lacrosse, football, basketball were essentially the sports that I, that I played through high school. And then I'm uh, Started to play lacrosse for a few years in college at Penn State, um, but never really got into the individual sports until really post-graduation um, of, of college. I moved down to Washington, D.C., and had started a career and really got into running. Um, again, not really a cyclist my entire life growing up, but, uh, you know, with, the, with the, the certain circumstances that I had happen in my life, it, it transitioned me over uh, into cycling as well. Very cool. And... You know, let, let's let, let's talk about. Obviously, there's a huge difference between training at the for the Olympics or Paralympics, and generally, it's because you have something that makes you different, something that makes you unique. Um, can you tell me a little bit about? I mean, that you know that story. Obviously, it's a, a major part of your life. Um, you had a moment in life that changed everything. Uh, a day you went swimming and you came back out with a different viewpoint and, and everything pivoted. Can you share a little bit of that with us? Yeah, absolutely. So kind of as I, as I mentioned, uh, I graduated college uh, from Penn State in uh, 2012 and uh, had moved down to Washington, D.C., had started a career with Ernst & Young. And uh, really for that first you know, year and a half, I was, I was having the time of my life. My life was really going in the, the right direction and the direction that I had kind of worked for my entire life and really had envisioned. Um, and, you know, things were going well. I was having a lot of professional aspirations and, and, and really meeting a lot of these goals. And then it was a year and a half into my career. I was down at the beach, uh, Ocean City, Maryland, and I mistakenly broke into shallow water. And uh, I, I broke my back at the T5 and T6 uh, vertebrae level. So that's right around your sternum area, um, if everyone's unaware. But 
um, was left paralyzed instantly. And uh, it was it was kind of a surreal moment. I, I, I tell everyone, you know, I didn't lose consciousness. I remember everything to that to that point very, very vividly. And um, I wasn't in a lot of pain or or really shock or anxiousness. It was almost more of a surreal feeling and kind of this sense of calm of that, that strangely came over me to kind of figure out, okay, I know it immediately the severity had what happened, but I don't think I was registering exactly what that would mean long-term. Um, you know, being an athlete my entire life growing up, I just envisioned, okay, you know, I, I can't move. Uh, it's just something as an injury, like a sprained ankle and I'll be back, you know, within a few weeks if we can get a chance. So um, I was airlifted uh, from Maryland uh, to the Baltimore Shock Trauma Center. Um, strangely enough with my story, Unfortunately, the helicopter that came to airlift me to the shock trauma center didn't have enough gas to get to the hospital that I had to have surgery for. And with a spinal cord injury, it's very important to get to the hospital as quickly as you can to have immediate surgery for to stabilize the spine, and then you can move forward. That gives you the best chance of, of any type of recovery. Um, so unfortunately, we had to stop off at a small uh, hospital in Salisbury, Maryland, to uh, refuel. And obviously, since they did the the refueling process, we had to take our vitals, I had to get out, of the hospital, uh, get out of the helicopter. And it was up until that point that, you know, I was in full consciousness and was aware of, of what happened. And I always remember this point of, I could hear the dispatcher on the phone with my mom. And, you know, in, in the background, I was screaming to her, you know, I'm, I'm paralyzed, I'm paralyzed, you know, my, my life has changed. And at that point, you know, I think my family didn't want to didn't want to really fully understand or hear it, and and again, they couldn't see me, so I I don't think they wanted to fully accept it. Um, but to me, that was the point where it really truly sunk in. Um, was actually expressing that to my mom, uh, and then kind of fast forward, I woke up uh, in the Baltimore Shock Trauma Center uh, when I had been brought back, and that's when I was surrounded by family and friends, and again seeing all of your loved ones there um, and the people that really supported you gives you a new meaning and uh, really shows the, the severity of what's going on, right? So like, again, I was starting to come to grasp of, okay, this is, I'm in this, I'm in this for the long haul. Um, so I spent a few weeks uh, at the shock trauma center. Um, okay, and can I just real quick, right, right in the middle there. Sure. You, I mean, clearly you're a very positive guy and you sort of get to this point of, okay, yeah, I like, I'm coming to grips with what's going on. How long was that period? I mean, to me, it's, as I hear your story, um, unbelievable, but it sounds like, okay, you're, you're being hella vacked out. You land to stop and get gas. You're yelling out, you know, telling your mom. So you're realizing what's happening and then you get to the, the final, the hospital where you're going to, you know, have the major surgery and do the, the bulk of the work in the beginning here. At this point, you're already realizing that, okay, this is what it is. This is a paralysis. This isn't just an injury. What's that? What's the initial reaction? How long does it take for you to, and I think this is a really important aspect for all of us, because certainly uh, we pray that most people don't have to go through what you've gone through, but we all have something that, you know, is going to happen in our lives, something that's going to be a shock, something that we don't want to happen. And how do we deal with it? And how do we come back? how long did it take you to get from maybe a negative mindset to a positive one from a, this can't be happening to, okay, it's happened. And what am I going to do about it? Can you talk a little bit more about just that, 
that mindset for such a, a hard thing in life. Yeah, sure. And it's, it's interesting because, you know, at this time I was 24 years old, I was financially set. I was starting my career. I was living in Washington, DC with two of my best friends from college and was just having the time of my life. And then all of a sudden, you know, this, this accident, this thing happened that right. immediately wanted to put my life at a, at a halt, right. It wanted to disrupt what was going on. Um, but to me, honestly, like I, I, I almost didn't have the time <laughs> to kind of go into that negative thought because in the beginning, this was something that was so new to me that, hey, okay, I could see what was going on. But I, I, again, I didn't truly understand the severity of it, really, even when I was in the early on in the, in the hospital from the surgery standpoint, right? I was still in that mindset of, oh, okay, you know, I'm going to overcome this, right? It's just something that I'm going to have to work on and, you know, just just take the challenge head on. So that was kind of my mindset from the very beginning was, you know, I'm going to beat this. And I remember the doctor had come into the hospital room and had told me and my family very bluntly that, you know, you have about a 1% chance that you're ever going to walk again. And immediately I looked at the doctor and my 100%. family and said, well, you, you, didn't, you didn't say 0%. So you still gave me a chance that I'm going to be able to overcome this, right? So I think I was just wired that way growing up um, from, you know, the characteristics, everything that my family instilled in me throughout my life. So I, it was just that mindset that I already had. Um, but kind of going back to your question as well was, it, to me, it was all about perspective. And there was a, this defining moment when I was in the inpatient hospital. And, you know, I was surrounded by a lot of people that were going through difficult times, similar situations to myself. And I had met a young woman that was very similar story, was down at the beach, had dove into shallow water, and she was in, a man, um, she was in an electric wheelchair. She had no use of her upper body. She was on a ventilator, um, was, was having trouble breathing, everything because she broke her neck. So I, I looked at that situation and said, you know, I'm very fortunate for what I still do have to be completely independent, have my upper body. Um, and, and, and looked at that situation and, and thought, you know, that easily could have been me. Right. And, and, and that was that kind of defining moment when I realized that, you know, everyone in life, rather what situation you're going through, whether it's financial difficulties, you're looking for a job, uh, relationship issues, you know, everyone always looks at that next person that just has a little bit more than you do. And you quickly just want that. And that's what you try to shoot for. So again, I, right. I saw, I saw this young woman that looked at me and said, you know, that could have been me. You know, I could have been Brandon and I could have my arms and be fully independent moving forward. So that was that kind of sense that I was grateful for what I do have. Um, so very, very life-defining moment for me there. Does this feel, did that feel in character for you? Meaning like throughout your life before that for 24 years, when you face something adversity, when something shocks you, when someone accidentally uh, steps on your foot, you know, are you the guy who's quick to say, Hey, I get it, man. You're forgiven. It's okay. Hey, you know what? This is what it is. Let's figure it out. Um, are you, have you always been that kind of guy or is this something that really shifted any personality or character traits for you? Yeah, no, I think I've always been that guy. I, that's why I try to tell everyone this situation didn't change me drastically. I mean, I, I still have a lot of the same characteristics that I've, that I've had prior to the accident. But for me, it just really changed that perspective on, on life. Um, I've always been a positive guy, but I think I'm even more positive now 
of just, you know, kind of rolling with the punches, you know, what, what I have to deal with. And that's going back to that mindset of, you know, I, I don't have the time or the energy to waste with any negative thoughts or, uh, you know, any type of negativity. So it's just been a way to continue to push forward. I love the, I, I want to adopt that moniker, Brandon. I don't have the time for this, man. You know what? I just don't have the time for it. I right. love it. And you didn't have a lot of time to waste, it seems like, because I know within a couple of months, is it after this injury that is obviously a pretty serious injury, you get introduced to uh, cycling and you get introduced to hand cycling. Who introduced you to that? And where did that come from? Where were you when that happened? And what did you think initially about hand cycling? Sure. Yeah. So I was in the hospital. Um, I had spent a month in the inpatient unit, um, just going through your daily rehab, learning how to essentially really live again and become independent. Um, so it's, there was kind of a transformation over the past couple of years of someone with a spinal cord injury that as you are recovering and rehabbing, the, the old approach was, you know, you'd be in the hospital for you know, upwards to a year, really trying to get as much recovery as you can back. But I think now the, the model is, you know, we want to get you back into society and get you back out into your normal life, whatever that normal might be. Um, but just getting you as independent as quickly as you possibly can to get you back into society. So uh, I think there's pros and cons to both. But while I was in the inpatient unit, uh, you know, they had all of my therapists and uh, especially my rec therapist, Mike Henley, uh, had had known that I was an athlete my entire life growing up. So wanted to give me an opportunity to, to get active again and to just show me that, you know, even with, you know, your current circumstances, you know, there is a way to be competitive again and to enjoy the outdoors. And uh, when I was in the hospital, I was basketball, a lot of different sports. Um, and then was introduced to a hand cycle. And at that time, I'd never, I, again, I was not a cyclist, but I was just looking to get and stay fit uh, and to try to just regain as much strength as I could coming out of this injury. And um, while I was in the hospital, my friends and family had uh, started a fundraiser for me to get my own hands. So I was discharged from the hospital in July of 2014. And when I came back, uh, I had a hand cycle that was in the garage waiting for me already. So I was very fortunate that way. And uh, I remember the first time I took it out, it was just in the neighborhood and it was nearly impossible to get out of the driveway. It was like, I, I couldn't even, I couldn't even go a couple feet. Um, well, and, and this might be a, a really basic newbie question, but how do you steer and cycle? You only got two hands. Yep. Can you, can you kind of explain to me how, how it actually works? Uh, and then I'm sure there might be a couple of different kinds. Sure. So what did you get? And uh, yeah, tell me about that, that kind of that first day out. Yeah. So the way the bike works, if no one has seen it, it's a recumbent style bike. So you're laying down essentially flat on your back. And then what's right in front of you is the bike is essentially it's upside down and reverse of a regular bicycle. So there's three wheels on the hand cycle. The, the wheel in the very front is your drive wheel. So that's the rear wheel of a bicycle. It has all of your gearing, um, your cassette and, and all of that is in the front of you. And then in the back, there are two, two wheels behind you. Um, the other difference with the hand cycle are the cranks. So the cranks go together rather than simultaneously um, like a regular bicycle. All right. So tell me about that first day uh, taking this thing out. Yeah, again, so I took it. You couldn't get it down the, they couldn't get it down the driveway. No. And it was like, oh man, what am I doing? I did not, I did not like it at all. Right. Did, did, really did not enjoy it. But I, I could see my family wanted to kind of push me into like, you know, you need to, this is a way that you can get active again and, 
And I think the rec therapist telling them to is like, just tell him to stick with it because he's going to really enjoy it. So um, I remember that first time was so hard, but then I was still again determined that I wanted to be able to ride this thing. Um, because again, I, I didn't want to let my family and friends down who put this money into a fundraiser for this bike and then it's going to sit in the garage. I took it out again like a week later and uh, we took it to an island in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania um, called City Island. And that second time, I was so determined that I wanted to ride the thing that I went from not being able to go out of the driveway to then riding 20 miles within a week. So that second time I took it out. So again, it was like, I'm determined that I'm going to do this. Um, and it was, it was funny. I had left that and it was like another defining moment for myself that I, I quickly realized that I needed to set a goal. Um, I, I, was, I was achieving a lot of things early on post-injury, um, but I needed another goal that I really wanted to set and try to strive for. And just prior to my injury, um, I had been training to run my first marathon. So that was always on the bucket list for me to do. Um, and when I was living in D.C., I had uh, registered for the Marine Corps Marathon, which starts in Virginia, goes through historic D.C., and it comes back into Virginia. Um, obviously, the accident happened. That put a halt on, on my training. And uh, again, I thought, you know, maybe I'm never going to be able to run that first marathon. It was something that I always wanted to accomplish. And it was after that second time that I took the hand cycle on to 20 miles, you know, I, I had this idea that I was going to contact the marathon organization and ask, would, you, would they allow me to transition my registration from a runner into the hand cycle organization? Because I saw that they were uh, providing an opportunity for hand cyclists to come down and complete the marathon. So uh, they were extremely excited and supportive of the idea. Um, so in October of 2014, I went down and uh, completed the first marathon. Wow. So in October, 2014, so this is just to give people perspective, May 24th, 14 is the accident. By October, 2014, you're competing in a hand cycling marathon competition. And then you move on and you, you know, you're getting um, meddling everywhere. So you start competing. How quickly after that marathon time did you jump into, I want to start competing everywhere I can? Because I, I could see how some people could say, you know, I just want to go off on a Saturday morning and go cycle for the day and stay active. But you were like, no, this is really cool. Did you like catch the bug? Or was there a goal in mind from the beginning of why you're entering? Because you six-time medalist for the USA Paralympic National Championships, UCI World Cup Circuit. Uh, three-time medalist, UCI World Championships medaling, two-time pa uh, para-pan-American Games, which is a huge international game. And then, of course, now uh, Olympic hopeful for the Tokyo 2020. Did you know you like had Olympics in your sights from the beginning? Or where, where did that dream come in, if not in the beginning? Yeah, so very interesting enough. Uh, I actually didn't leave that marathon saying, you know, I'm going to immediately start competing again. Um, I was still so early on. I just, as you mentioned, so I was five months into my injury uh, and was still going through outpatient rehab, was getting back into working again at Ernst & Young, was trying to manage that, uh, but was still really focused on how can I recover and get back to quote unquote normal as quickly as I can. So I still had that recovery mindset in my head. So I actually had uh, enrolled into a clinical trial that was out in San Diego, California um, that year. Uh, which was a stem cell trial. So I was one of first four people in the U.S. to have stem cells transplanted directly into the spinal cord. Uh, it was wow. the first time they had done it in the United States. Uh, it was very difficult because of all the FDA restrictions and, and regulations. So 
Um, I had decided that I was going to give this an opportunity. Uh, I went out there in uh, July of 2015, so one year later, um, went through um, the trial. And then part of the trial, I was, I was enrolled in the trial for five years, but so I, I was traveling back and forth from Pennsylvania on like a month over month basis and just quickly realized that this was very difficult uh, to try to manage everything. So I actually had relocated out to San Diego, California to be closer to the trial and to continue on a daily rehab uh, schedule being out there. And just the life in San Diego was a lot easier um, for someone in a wheelchair than it was in Pennsylvania, particularly going through the winters. Um, so being someone new to a wheelchair. So I had gone through that. And, you know, for the first year that I lived out in San Diego, I didn't even have the bike with me. Um, I was completely focused on trying to recover from this injury still. Um, and it wasn't until I met a guy uh, who was out through the program who had a hand cycle and um, was just talking about different trails that he was going on. And, and it was when I quickly kind of realized that, you know, I'm out here in San Diego, I should be experiencing San Diego and what better way to do that than, than buy a bike. And um, I remember I, I went back for Thanksgiving uh, in 2016, and I told my parents, you know, I'm bringing the bike back out with me to San Diego whenever I go back. And at that time, I, again, my parents were were looking at me like, how are you going to get the bike in your car? How are you going to get into the bike by yourself? Asking me all these questions. I was like, I'm going to figure it out. Right. You know, every single step of the way throughout this process, I've just figured it out. I didn't have an answer for you at, at that time, but there's a way to do it. Right. So um, was was very driven that way. And it was when I took it out uh, to San Diego with me, I met a prior Ironman champion uh, named David Bailey, who was in a very similar situation to myself. Um, but prior to his accident, he was a world champion. Um, he was a world champion motocross uh, racer. So was his whole life was athletics. And then I saw what he was able to do from you know a parasports perspective of wow, you know, there's really some elite competition out there. Um, and he was the one that really pushed me to, to really go after this goal and to try to enter into some of these competitions and, and try to make a career out of it because I think he saw some, some, some hope in myself. And uh, I, I think he may have seen a younger version of himself, you know, coming, coming back from injury and having an opportunity to excel from an athletic standpoint. So it really wasn't until 2017, early on in that year, you know, when I really took it serious, we took my first cycling race that year. And then I had an opportunity to move into the Paralympic and Olympic Training Center here in Colorado Springs in 2017. I can see it. You know, you go, you go hang out uh, with a former Ironman champion to go ride the coast of California. <laughs> I can imagine, hey, you, you should really think about competing. You should think about getting in there. So let's talk a little bit about, uh, about training um, versus pushing yourself as one thing. But training to go to the Paralympics is an entirely other thing. Uh, when you move in, and this is so interesting, obviously, that you know, by the time you move in to the residences, you compete, uh, you do the tryout, and you have to do a tryout just to get uh, acceptance as a residency, right? Right, yeah. So that's the way it works for me. So this was it, it, kind of essentially the way it works is each uh, NGB or national governing body, so essentially every sport, um, has a budget for those first for those four years. So at that time, the team had just uh, completed uh, the Paralympic Games in Rio, 
and they were looking for developmental athletes. So I saw this post that they were looking for developmental athletes. And at this time, I had never raced a official cycling event yet. But I had reached out to them and told them, kind of put together a business case of, you know, why you should give me an opportunity. And, you know, if you do give me this opportunity, I'm not going to let you down. I'm going to prove that your program can work and that, you know, you're getting the right guy for this opportunity. And uh, they gave me a shot. And I I went out in uh, March of 2017 for a two-week tryout. It was just myself um, and then two coaches that I was, you know, working with directly. And they they put me through the ringer here. I was coming from sea level. So to go up to, to go up to altitude here in Colorado Springs and, uh, and to, I mean, you're a a mile high, man, or just about. Right. So, and and, and to go through a two week tryout was, was very daunting. Um, but I think they just saw that, you know, I, I didn't have any quit in me. Um, and this guy was completely driven. Um, they saw, you know, my work ethic from, you know, just from my professional side and then, you know, essentially ready to, to give up everything to, to really try to chase this dream. And I think that they were looking to really build out the residency program and developmental pipeline um, leading into Tokyo because they just came out from Rio and had some athletes retire. Um, so I think they saw an opportunity. So I was very fortunate that I left there in March and a week later had, had been notified that I had earned a spot um, on the residence program. And have an opportunity to, to move into the training center. And ironically enough, you know, the interesting part of my story was I was injured May 24th, 2014. And the first day that I moved into the training center was May 24th, 2017. So to the day, three years later. And it, it, does that hit you that day? Is that a surreal moment of like, wow, look at, look at what three years has been, or did you find it? Did you recognize that like the next day or something over pizza? No, yeah, no, I knew immediately. Uh, Cause especially I was still so early on. So it was like, I was always kind of milestones to try to track my progress and you know, make sure that I'm still moving forward. And uh, it was, it was kind of a surreal feeling again. It was almost like everything was coming full circle. And this, this was really meant to be. Um, so I was very, you know, optimistic and really just ready to go. I mean, it was just an exciting opportunity to, to kind of celebrate and, um, you know, see how far I've come in just a short amount of time in just three years. Of course. Hey, uh, Brandon, as we, as we sort of wind down here together, I want to talk a little bit about, uh, Tokyo 2020 and then what's next for you when you, you know, get the news earlier in, in 2020, of course, as the pandemic had had first begun to break out and you, you know, we're not sure what's going to happen. And I know, you know, lockdown started happening and it was early in the year, but a lot of people are still hopeful. Hey, you know, summertime, maybe, you know, we'll be back in the summer. We'll be back in the fall. No one knows what's going to happen with Olympic Tokyo 2020 summertime. Is it going to happen or not? When you get the news that it's postponed and it's going to be next year. It's going to be 2021. <laughs> Technically, Tokyo 2020 is going to be in 2021. How does it hit you? Um, and what do you do about it? In, I guess mentally inside to prepare or to process that. Because being, you know, there, there's something to this, the title that you have. Because, you know, learning, you know, working with uh, Cole McKeel over there and a lot of the other Olympians we've been talking to, you're either an Olympian or you're an Olympic hopeful. And being an Olympic hopeful, there's something to that name, right? There's an identity of there's hope in that because you are training towards and you've been accepted and you're going to be there and you're looking forward to it. And it's this day that's going to be in your life. And now it gets postponed for a year. How do you deal with that? And was it the same as you always do? Or did you have anything uh, 
unique as a reaction? Yeah, you know, that was a very difficult time. And, it, and I think everyone was kind of dealing with this, you know, even outside of sport. It was, it's that sense of uncertainty that's, that's not really comfortable. Um, and it was really dealing with that was the biggest challenge. It was just, you know, every single day, all the athletes are, are still hearing that, you know, one thing on the news that now that the games are going on as scheduled, we're getting emails and communications from, you know, Team USA and then, you know, the IPC and the IOC in, in general have continued to train as if the games were going to happen. So I was trying not to let any outside factor, you know, come in and, and create any additional chaos than what was going on. Um, so it, it was just trying to balance that, but it was really that uncertainty was the most difficult part. So un, un, until we actually found out that the games were officially postponed to the following year, um, you know, I was okay with it. I understood, you know, that we're, we're putting the athletes' safety and well-being, you know, at the very forefront, and that was the priority. But honestly, to be realist with you too, you know, from an athlete's training perspective, you know, you're building up and you're trying to peak for a certain time within a given year. And that's how you're trying to manage your training. And it wasn't until, you know, really just a month ago, I started to really see these numbers coming through my fitness improving even more. And I could see that all the training that we were putting, putting in over the years, you know, was coming together. And I was, you know, really preparing myself for a good opportunity to make the team. Um, our trials event was going to be in June uh, of this year to, to find out who was going to be named to the team. So selfishly, you know, I was frustrated that, you know, these past three and a half years, all of the, all of the time, all of the money, um, you know, every investment that I put into trying to achieve this goal, well, now it was put on halt, right? So that was, that was challenging at first um, to try to deal with. But then again, it was going back to that original mindset I just thought of, I don't have time to, to think of this negative thoughts or to have any type of negativity in here. So again, I looked at it from, you know, glass half full approach of, okay, I have another year that I can get faster, stronger, fitter, and even improve my chances of not only making the team, but then to get a medal in Tokyo. So that's kind of the way that I've approached it. Um, and then just moving forward, I've continued to have that same goal as of trying to make it to Tokyo. But as you mentioned, it was, it was challenging for me because I'd never been to the games before. This was my first opportunity. Um, so I'm still trying to put a positive spin on it and, and have some light. Um, but again, it just, just kind of adds to the story. And, you know, I, I think for, for my whole story and the way that I've been able to, to cope with it is, you know, my entire life I've been dealing with disruptions and have been having to try to find opportunities to be resilient and to overcome this adversity. So still being somewhat young and, and new, uh, you know, post-injury, I think it was just that mindset that I was able to instill. I was able to from the injury uh, to be able to deal with this latest disruption. That's actually a very, very good answer. So Brandon, um, last question, I suppose, for you is, what do you want people to know and what do you want people to focus on as we look forward to Tokyo 2020 in 2021? Um, what advice do you have for people going through disruption in, in, in their life that you have certainly gone through and in many, many ways have overcome and continue to do that? What advice would you have for someone going through disruption? Yeah, I think it goes back to that perspective, but really it's being just being comfortable in the uncomfortable. You know, a, a lot of 
a lot of experience that, it, especially now, these experiences that people are going with, you know, no one's ever gone through this. So I can kind of relate this back to my spinal cord injury. Of, that was a very new situation that I had to deal with. This is a very new situation that the world is dealing with. So, you know, I can kind of correlate both of those together of, you know, trying to be comfortable at it, trying to, to manage as best you can. But, you know, other opportunities is to take risks. I mean, I, I took a lot of risks over these past couple of years of, you know, I may fail, but if I didn't take that opportunity or, or to take that risk, you know, a lot of these, these additional opportunities would not have been presented to myself. So, um, you know, I, I would take advantage of the time now to, to try to envision over these next couple of years, you know, where you want to be, where you want to go, and then you know, take those risks. And take, take, the, take the time to envision, because if you're in the middle of a disruption, you have that Correct. and take the risk that you always want to do to move forward. And Brandon, we wish you the very, very best of luck. I know you were going to crush it at Tokyo 2020 and 2021. We're in your corner all the way, man. Um, God bless you. And uh, yeah, go represent us. Yeah, I appreciate it, Matt. Thanks so much. All right. Thanks, Brandon. Hey guys, that's the show for this week. I really hope uh, you enjoyed meeting my friend Brandon Lyons, man. What a good guy. And obviously he's going to be out there uh, representing our country for the Tokyo 2020 Olympics. You can follow Brandon on Instagram at iron.lions and that's lions with a Y. So his Instagram handle is iron.lions. Go check out. He's got some really cool pictures in there. Pictures of training. You can see kind of the facility. You can see like all the, just the cool things he's doing and what his life is all about. And then, of course, on Facebook, uh, it's Brandon.Lions. Uh, you can go find out and, and follow him on Facebook, Brandon.Lions. Re- actually, it's Brandon.Lions.125. But if you search Brandon Lions, I'm sure you're going to find him on Facebook and Instagram. Make sure you follow the, uh, the show, of course. Follow me at, at Matt Browning on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. And I'm looking forward to seeing you next week. Stay out or stay in, whatever's good for you. But either way, be driven, and I'll see you next week. All right. Bye-bye.